Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about truly respecting elders. I want to speak to truly respecting elders from the perspective of remembering, challenging, and building upon foundations. I'm going to get back to those concepts in some detail right in the middle of the show, but first I want to share a quick story online. It's not that recent of a story, and current events are not generally what I do, but it might help frame the conversation just to have at least one example right up front. This is from an email that was sent out by a group called Faithful America. Julie Atwood was at her son's wake, standing next to his casket, when she got the news. The church was canceling the funeral because her son was gay. Reverend T.W. Jenkins of New Hope Missionary Baptist Church in Tampa, Florida, told Julie that he'd read in the newspaper obituary that her son was married to another man and decided that holding the funeral would be, quote, blasphemous, unquote. The story is generating national headlines, but so far, Jenkins is only doubling down, saying his church plans to continue to stand on the word of God. The gist of the email was a desire to show Pastor Jenkins and the media covering the story how many Christians are appalled by how he's interpreting our faith and hurting Julian Evans' grieving family. This is somebody who was not a stranger to that congregation. It was simply another piece of information that the church was otherwise willfully unaware of that when confronted with, responded to, and I would say, responded to badly. But my guess is that if I were to do a survey of the eldest members in my circle of friends and family versus perhaps people who are much younger than I am, so if I went up 20 plus years in age and asked a question about whether this pastor was doing the right thing or went down 20 plus years in age and asked the same question, I would get a really stark contrast there that maybe the wisest among the older and wiser in my group of friends and family would feel really sad that this decision was being made and might even suggest that they wouldn't make the same decision themselves. But I'm quite sure they would defend it. And those people who are much younger than I am, especially those people who are Christian and younger than me, I'm quite sure would say that the funeral is in many ways for the family, for the congregation, and it doesn't necessarily represent any sort of blasphemy, as this pastor would, would suggest. And that's the difference. And when I want to speak to it from the perspective of respecting elders, the line I want to draw is not this generation gap that I've initially presented. I just wanted to do that to give us a way of thinking about it. The line I want to draw is between the people who are that much older than me now and what they would have thought when they were my age or younger. Because I think that there's a chance, anyway, at least based on my experience, there's a chance that there's a big divide there. And somewhere along the way, whether it's the process of aging, whether it's the way our media, and certain media outlets in particular, have been very corrosive in terms of the way they've communicated fear into the hearts of so many Christian people, that there's been a shift. Now, the next episode of Walk the Earth is going to touch on this just a little bit. I'm going to deal in the next question with that line between faith and superstition and talking about how fear gets in the way there and causes people to do things which, frankly, Jesus didn't demonstrate and Jesus, in some cases, orders to do exactly the opposite. 
this notion that comes from the Sermon on the Mount about walking a mile in the other person's shoes, or if somebody forces you to, to carry their bag, carry it an extra mile, or if they demand the coat off your back, give them your shirt too. This sort of attitude is a very clear and oft-repeated theology presented to us by Jesus of Nazareth, letting your own interests go, swallowing your pride, and ignoring, perhaps, things that might be considered blasphemy. So, from a walk-the-earth perspective, I guess maybe it makes sense for me to, to talk about one more thing as an introductory idea as well. Uh, just today, at the time of recording, this would be somewhere around the 1st of September, there was a post put up by Hacking Christianity. It can be found at hackingchristianity.net on the September 1st entry. Three ways the United Methodist Church gets progressive Methodism shockingly wrong. And among the things they list is kind of going through this, is this notion that if you're progressive in your thinking, or if you're officially part of what in this case would be a progressive Methodist group, that somehow you fall short, that your focus becomes all about politics and uh, social justice and culture, and you don't really take the concepts of mission, ministry, and discipleship seriously enough. And I objected to this, put a post up to the degree, you know, on that topic, on the Facebook page for Walk the Earth, essentially kind of what I said in a nutshell was that I don't see any evidence that progressive Christianity, that progressively focused disciples have you know, less of a biblical focus or are less willing to do Bible study or less willing to do outreach. And in fact, in many ways, I've seen the opposite in small group meetings, in Bible studies, in Sunday school meetings, taking what was truly more of a moderate approach than a fully left view or even a progressive approach, but even a moderate approach would get you these responses like, well, Greg, you're, you're being way too theological here, or why you have to ask so many questions, or, you know, Greg, Jesus doesn't have to be the focal point of every answer to every issue, or why can't we just do what we've always done? And really, that's the question that I want to hit. This notion of tradition being used as some sort of an excuse where tradition can trump everything else, including, frankly, scripture-based Orthodox Christianity. But since I've mentioned Walk the Earth, maybe I should get a little introductory material in and not count on myself to remember at the conclusion of the show to do a lot of house cleaning. You can find Walk the Earth on Facebook. There's a separate page for that podcast. And although this is an Inappropriate Conversations episode, there's interesting material that's posted in both places, and particularly if, if a listener was interested in the religion aspects of the mix of things that happen on inappropriate conversations. Walk the Earth provides another perspective, very similar, but much more of a discipleship-focused look over on Walk the Earth. Of course, there's also a Facebook page for inappropriate conversations. It's the one listed as a cause. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at IC underscore Greg, and tweets that I post there when I'm not talking about movies or soccer or football are related to both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth. At email, I can be found at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. Same email I've always had. And that's important, because I'm anticipating that early in October, I'm going to do something I did a year ago in October. And that's put out the next Points and Questions show, Mining Your P&Q Part 4. If things go well, I'll have enough comments and feedback to do an entire show by then. So this is a good time. If you wanted to send me something either via email or through Facebook or Twitter. The website for Inappropriate Conversations is www.inappropriateconversations.org. That is a great place to find 
everything that has ever been recorded. All of the past shows, there are articles up there as well. I'm going to get to an article here in a minute as, as well. So the website is the place to find the comprehensive list of, of all inappropriate conversations programs. With this being number 149, you, you can imagine that there's a heck of a lot of material to be found there. Inappropriate conversations can also be found, of course, on iTunes. I access the uh, shows through Zoom to make sure that it posts in both places. But, of course, in iTunes, you're only going to see maybe the last 20 or 22 shows, depending on, on how that goes. Um, Stitcher does a similar thing in terms of not necessarily providing an access to everything that's available on the website. But I'm happy to say that Inappropriate Conversations is on Stitcher, and Stitcher.com uh, is a great way to access that. It's one of the best ways I know of to have access to any podcast when you're on the go. If there are issues with uh, the podcast app, for example, on the iPhone, Stitcher is just a much better route for it. I've done something else slightly different lately, and that's that I've started to work on SoundCloud. Now, SoundCloud is not... It's not in my plans to put entire shows there, as a rule. What I've done instead is gone back to the very first episode at the very beginning and worked my way forward in time, putting in just a clip. In some cases, a long clip, like an entire poetry reading or an entire essay. But in other cases, it's just a relatively short piece of the show to give people a sense in audio form, rather than just the show notes that are put up on the website, of what each episode might be about. The most recent SoundCloud entries I've put up there, though, however, come from Take Him With You. Recently, I did an interview on that show at uh, www.takehimwithyou.com. The podcast episodes that Rick and Amy Moyer put up late June and early July, probably the most recent guest appearances I've done, and what I did from a SoundCloud perspective to promote those is pull most of the body of those interviews and put them up to where they could be accessed that way. It's also a way for me to let uh, Rick know just exactly kind of how to SoundCloud function with a show that he's, you know, of course, very well aware of, being the uh, engineer and the editor of the program. He can get a sense for what it's like to excerpt something and stick it out there on SoundCloud. And depending on how you approach SoundCloud as a tool, there's a, a certain time limit that you can use in terms of the number of minutes that are free. Beyond that, then there's a, a couple of different methods they have for, for payment. I'm on a relatively unlimited plan now because my, my game plan is to continue to load up at least a snippet of all of these shows. We'll see how that goes as time progresses. Truly respecting elders. So if we can dismiss, in some cases, the ideas that some in the church have that if you don't have a traditional view of what certain scripture passages say that perhaps maybe you cannot be dismissed as somebody who, who isn't taking the Bible seriously. I've done a Christianity 301 show more than a year ago, and Inappropriate Conversations 150 is going to deal with a great deal of scripture and a great deal of depth. See, I find that where people, especially people who are older than me, have a disagreement of opinion with me about what scripture says and what scripture means, I tend to not be the person who is guilty of taking things out of context. In fact, I tend to be the person who takes things so much into context that the attention span of some folks cannot keep up with the level of detail. In other words, if Paul has one thing to say in an isolated verse in a letter to a specific church, but the overwhelming body of everything he said everywhere else causes us to look at that particular verse in a greater context, perhaps in the context of the letter that it was written, but maybe in the context of all the letters that we have in the canonical Bible that Paul wrote, to me, that's, if anything, me being guilty of being too focused on not getting caught 
with just a, an out-of-context reading or understanding. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the right way to read the Bible is to understand it from the broadest possible perspective, from the context that Jesus, with infinite knowledge and wisdom, would have understood it. It's not enough just to read the Old Testament from a New Testament perspective. It's probably better to see them all as part of a single narrative and to interpret both the Old Testament and the New Testament from the perspective of the entire story being told there. And I think like a forest for the trees problem, a lot of times you have Christians who have lost complete sight of what the entire forest is about because they're really just focused on one branch, usually a branch on somebody else's tree. So what do I mean by this notion of remembering, but also challenging? And it's the idea of building upon the foundation that we've been given. You see, when I was a kid, somewhere maybe the mid-1970s, there was a great deal of discussion going on about birth control at the time, because really we were only a decade or so in to the, to the birth control pill being readily available. As a parent educating a young child, whether male or female, it became very important for parents to make sure that kids understood contraception. And for me, that information exchange went extremely well. I've talked about birth control before, really in the very first year of Inappropriate Conversations. I kind of detailed how that sex education course within my church went in the 1970s and how shockingly different it would be if that same Christian denomination was putting together coursework today. Just to cut to the chase and not to rehash an entire story, it may be enough to say that abstinence-only education was so far away from what I was taught that it doesn't even make sense to make the comparison. It wasn't abstinence-only. It wasn't abstinence-plus. It was in every way well and truly fully comprehensive. And at no point was anybody saying that birth control was evil or wrong or some sort of murder. And yet, I think that, again, if you if you go to the elders in my, my world today, especially those who are keen on Fox News, they may be the ones to be telling you that they they either have a completely different worldview about the use of contraception, or worse, they don't realize their worldview has changed. This is why in the introduction I, I raised the question of what would happen if you made a comparison to what these same people were teaching me as a child when they were in their 30s and 40s, versus what they're saying now when they're past retirement age. And if there's a difference... I'd love to be able to identify where the difference came from, but it's disturbing to me that, again, many of them might not perceive that there is any difference. They've forgotten. So the first rule I want to kind of put out there is remember. There's going to be a place where the elders in your life that you're supposed to honor and respect stop remembering. And it is not respecting your elders to stop remembering with them. The most important thing you can do, whether it's a medical condition or simply the process of aging, simply the fact that one brain has so much capacity and the longer you live, the more memories you create and generate, somebody has to remember who those people were, what they said, what they did, what they stood for, and it becomes even more critically important if they themselves have forgotten. But that poses a a real uncomfortable challenge, doesn't it? Because... If they are at odds with themselves, do you let it go? Do you ignore them? Do you do the metaphorical version of just walking on or walking away? Because if you're going to engage those elders who have this problem 
of not remembering what they've always thought or not reconciling what they felt like when they were raising children versus what they feel like now when they're perhaps standing in judgment of other people who are raising children. Maybe they can't remember how much they resented the older generation judging them for the way they were raising their children now, but they're doing the same judging themselves. I think if you're going to be engaged, you have to challenge them. You have to remind them. What did they teach you? What did they say then? And whether it's really and truly that different now. And in some cases, maybe there's a difference. Maybe there is a difference that makes a difference. I want to talk a little bit at some point here about, you know, scientific knowledge expanding. But it gets interesting in that what you tend to find is that instead of like a, somebody who is proud that the profession he worked in is now so much more advanced and can do many more different things, you often talk about somebody who says, well, you know, back in my day, we were so much better when all we had was a pen and a steno pad. It's like, well, you're really blaming the laptop, the tablet, and the portable audio cassette recorder? For what's wrong in journalism today? What's wrong in journalism today is we're not doing journalism anymore. Investigative reporting is the punchline to a joke. It's not something that actually happens. And in those rare occasions when you do see investigative journalism actually beginning to creep up and look out over the, the sewer line where it's been slunk through all these years, what you end up getting is police in places like Ferguson, Missouri, who are so freaked out by reporters actually reporting that they arrest them not knowing what else to do with this strange phenomenon of these people who say they're in the news business acting very strangely, acting bizarrely weird, actually doing things like asking questions, doing investigations, and reporting the results. But it's not unusual. It wouldn't surprise me. And some of the people who were near retirement age when I was working as a copy editor in a daily newspaper would not surprise me if those people still alive, maybe in the retirement home part of their of their life, are still sitting there saying that, that they resent the way things are done today, that they remember before we had computers and it was so much better back then. Why well, dispute that? That would be similar to somebody who was part of what became NASA, suggesting that we had used traditional airplane or jets to break the speed of sound. And how dare us consider anything new in technology that might take us into outer space? Because... When they were engineers, this is the way we did technology. And that you should reject all the science that's happened during that two-decade span from the 50s to the 70s. Because back in my day, we, we did it all with jets. That's kind of what I'm talking about. It's either not remembering the innovation, the thought process, the wisdom that was going on in the middle part of their lives. Or it's rejecting it for reasons that have more to do with superstition and fear, perhaps than with anything else. So I'd say that it's important to challenge those ideas, especially when those ideas don't have much of a leg to stand on. Because I don't believe our job is to preserve the way things have always been done around here. That is absolutely true within the church, but Walk the Earth is a different podcast. In our society, from an inappropriate conversations perspective, it is inappropriate for most of the focus of younger people trying to respect their elders by preserving the way we've always done it around here. What we're really supposed to be doing is building upon the foundation that those people laid. And it's appropriate to build upon that foundation even if those same people, now 30 or 40 years on in life, say we shouldn't do it. If they say we shouldn't do it because they know there's something fundamentally flawed with their own work, 
with their own wisdom, with their own thought process, and that the foundation that they themselves created is not something that we should be building upon, then we should listen to them because it's theirs. They're going to know it almost better than anybody else. But that's not usually what's happening. Usually it's this forgetfulness that I'm talking about where they've forgotten that it was their work that led to the breakthrough discovery, that led to the different perspective on how to deal with something, whether that's healing a disease or baking a cake, whatever it is. If we're going to build upon the foundation, sometimes I feel like we have to build upon a foundation that they've set, that sadly, they've forgotten they've set. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. At uh, inappropriateconversations.org, in addition to podcasts, which I post and categorize, by using the identity, for want of a better word, of the different drummer as a way for us to kind of understand um, how to find things. So if the different drummer is primarily about uh, movie direction or uh, an author, if they're an artist or if they're a musician. In fact, many more of them have been musicians than anything else. There's a category there that can actually filter the shows down by just the shows that had a different drummer, who maybe in this case was a musician. The other thing, though, that is in that list uh, is a sort of a hot link to the Walk the Earth posts, but also something called intro and something called articles. The category called intro is just that. It's a way of me forecasting what future shows will be. It's, a, you know, it'll get you to the first couple of inappropriate conversations, kind of think of it, because those were introductory episodes. But the other one is articles. I don't post just a ton of blog entries on a regular basis. It probably averages well less than one a month. But if you wanted to try to find actual blog entries rather than podcast entries, the articles category is the way to do it. On August 5th of this year, the most recent article I've written at the time I'm doing this recording was a review of a new cassette tape and you know, MP3 file put out there by Jacob Rellinger, who's a former different drummer, doing a blues recording under the name Reverend Moon and putting out a recording called Coyote Gospels. I want to bring Coyote Gospels up now, because I want to speak in particular about one track on it. There are many tracks that I would describe as thought-provoking, and many tracks that are likely designed to, shall we say, truly respect our elders by challenging the foundation they've built, by trying to see if the foundation they've built has integrity, has the integrity that they had in mind when they laid it, this metaphorical foundation, or if it stood up to the test of time. Because you wouldn't just want to come along and found, uh, find a slab that's been there for three or four decades and just start building on it. You'd, you'd want to test it and see how it's going. Not just speaking as a political thinker, but also as a Christian. The foundation laid for me by my parents and other elders, other relatives, was one of saying it's important to read the Bible, it's important to pray, and it's important to think that Jesus in the greatest commandment, his answer to that question is, love the Lord with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. This means that it is never inappropriate to ask questions that reflect thought. And the lyrics to this song, God Culture, by Reverend Moon, on the album Coyote Gospels, ask a few of those questions. <laughs> ¶¶ 
Let me tell you a story 2,000 years old. Maybe you've heard it. It's already been told. About a teenage girl and a man she was taught to obey. About what happened next? You know, she didn't have a say. He planted his seed deep within her soil. She knew she'd been deceived. She felt she'd been despoiled. So he sent his bro to trick her, and she was beguiled. Even told people of the honor to carry her attacker's child. Too young to consent. Unable to escape. Don't call it immaculate conception. Your God committed rape. There's another verse I didn't share in the clip, and I'm not going to share here. I think it's well worth the time to go out to the Arachnidisc's website. I've got a link on the article that was posted on inappropriateconversations.org. It may still be true that you can sample all the songs in their entirety there. It's certainly worth the effort to go look. The song God Culture by Reverend Moon is the one to look for on this particular topic. In a small group meeting just a few days ago, I decided I would share this, partly because I wanted to kind of see how the oldest people in my circle of friends would react to it, and also to give me an opportunity to sort of kind of get my mind around how I feel about this particular verse. It is both accurate, I think I would say, to one degree or another, a little quibble here or there, but we'll get to it in just a second, and also extremely controversial. I could understand the Reverend Jenkins from Florida calling it blasphemous because it's certainly uh, more challenging, let's say, than trying to conduct a funeral service to bury somebody who happens to be gay, you know, as far as that goes. But I think the challenge here is perfectly acceptable. The challenge is actually what we need to be doing, what we need to be talking about. Because the answer that you get back is, well, hang on a second, Greg. Our culture was very different back then. So when I introduce this topic in, in a face-to-face -face conversation with some friends, I, I raised it this way. I said, how old do we think Mary was, the, you know, the biblical character Virgin Mary? How old do we think she was at the time that she con was conceived by the Holy Spirit and gave birth to baby Jesus? You know, the, the Bible tells us she had to be something like 14 years old, maybe 13, certainly no more than 15 at the most, but probably less than 15 and this almost has to be true, because in the Gospel according to St. Matthew, he tells us that it was a young girl giving birth to a child to fulfill part of Isaiah's prophecy, where you know, in the purest transcription of the Hebrew, Isaiah doesn't really tell us that a virgin is going to give birth. What he tells us is that a young girl is going to give birth. And the answer you get back to this notion is that, well, the, the culture was different back then. You know, back then, you know, you were, your lifespan wasn't that much more than 30 or 40. Uh, people were getting married at 13, 14. It, was, it would be unusual for somebody to not have a child well into their mid-20s or later. It was a different culture back then. But my response to that was, how is that any different from the argument that you hear from the Christian left that says that when Paul, in particular Paul, is talking about sexual acts, homosexual sexual acts, that he is denouncing, that the culture was different back then than it is now, too. That 
when he's looking at what's going on in places like Rome and Corinth, he's talking about forced sexual behavior uh, between men and young boys. He's talking about temple prostitution. He's talking about all sorts of things, which I think most of us, especially if it was non-consensual, sexually violent behavior, would denounce today. Meaning that the culture back then was different than the culture now. But ironically, on this particular issue, if Paul's describing what everyone seems to think he's describing, it's one of those examples where our culture is kind of the same. But what happens if you play the absolute card? What happens if you come along and say, no, Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, the Bible says that someone who is, just to make a joke out of it, at least 8,000 years old, engaged in procreative sexual acts of some sort, impregnated, let's put it that way, a 14-year-old girl. And if the Bible says that's okay, then who are we to have laws on our books about 40-year-old men having sex with 14-year-old girls? It gets you to a place dealing with a relative degree of discomfort, right? Because the same absolutist perspective that you get from what I would call religious conservatives or the religious right on issues related to homosexuality and other things related to premarital sex, divorce, all that other sort of stuff. You apply those and you probably could look at the laws in almost every one of the 50 states, probably all of America's 50 states, and say we are spitting in the face of God by making illegal what God himself through the Holy Spirit did to and with Virgin Mary. This is a fair question. It seems like it's not, because it's taking us to a place where tradition tells us we don't have to worry about this. But you know, let me go back to the thing I wanted to say in the beginning about truly respecting our elders. My parents raised me to read the Bible, to pray, and to think. The third part wasn't optional. So either we must acknowledge that the standard of sexual behavior changes by place, by time especially when enough time has gone by that we could be talking about a completely different era, and that the principle of perhaps loving your neighbor as you love yourself gives us a very good head start into what is and is not acceptable. And probably the key to that is consent. But do we really believe that a 14-year-old then was in a position to consent? Not 100% sure. I do know that today, now, we do not believe that a 14-year-old would be in a position to consent at all. And therein lies the problem. The Pollyanna Cowgirl Podcast. So it's like someone saying I love you to you once a week. Tony Pucci specifically. Tony Pucci specifically. Hi, this is Tony Pucci of the Pollyanna Cowgirl Records Podcast. I'd like to invite you to join me each week as I play one hour of pod-safe pop and rock music. You can find the show at PollyannaCowgirl.com or at the host podcast network site, simplysyndicated.com. Peace and love. On the question of consent, I'm pretty sure in the next episode, Inappropriate Conversations 150, I'm not going to include this particular passage of Isaiah's uh, prophecy, Isaiah chapter 6, starting in the beginning. And I know I've shared it previously on Inappropriate Conversations, but I'm in the mood to cover it again, and it will in some ways provide us some sense of what's coming in a couple of weeks with an episode I intend to call Opening the Scriptures. But it, because it comes to the heart of the question of consent, let's look at Isaiah's experience, a grown man uh, with a certain standing in the community, and see what his level of consent is when the Lord himself appears to him and makes a suggestion. Here's Isaiah, chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. 
He was sitting on his throne, high and exalted, and his robe filled the whole temple. Around him, flaming creatures were standing, each of which had six wings. Each creature covered its face with two wings, its body with two, and used the other two for flying. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy! The Lord Almighty is holy! His glory fills the world! The sound of their voices made the foundations of the temple shake, and the temple itself became filled with smoke. I said, There is no hope for me! I am doomed! Every word that passes from my lips is sinful, and I live among a people whose every word is sinful, and yet with my own eyes I have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the creatures flew down to me, carrying a burning coal that he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with the burning coal and said, This has touched your lips, and now your guilt is gone, and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord say, Whom shall I send? Who will be our messenger? I answered, I will go. Send me. So he told me to go and give the people this message. No matter how much you listen, you will not understand. No matter how much you look, you will not know what is happening. Then he said to me, Make the minds of these people dull, their ears deaf, their eyes blind, so that they cannot see or hear or understand. If they did, they might turn to me and be healed. I asked, How long will it be like this, Lord? He answered, Until the cities are ruined and empty, until the houses are uninhabited, until the land itself is a desolate wasteland. I will send the people far away and make the whole land desolate. Even if one person out of ten remains in the land, he too will be destroyed. He will be like a stump of an oak tree that has been cut down. The stump represents a new beginning for God's people. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. The chapter in its entirety. So, Isaiah has been given this opportunity, having seen miraculous signs and heard miraculous voices, having had an experience, um, uh, an ectoplasmic experience, to use a Ghostbusters kind of a comparison, where something otherworldly has come into contact with him, and miraculously, he was touched by something that should have burned him to the point of being unable to speak. But instead, being able to speak, and, and being able to speak because God wanted to ask him a question. That question is, whom shall I send? And my answer back is, to what degree was Isaiah in a position here to consent? I suppose he could have said no, right? But to what degree was he really, really in a position to consent? One of the things that I think the elders in our, in our the generation above us understands least is this concept of consent. There's very little understanding, as a matter of fact, of what it means when somebody says yes to something because they feel that they have no choice. When a Catholic school, for example, tells a teacher, sign this piece of paper or you're fired, and they sign the piece of paper, I think we've got to be a little bit skeptical of the, well, the quality of the contract that's involved there. And we're seeing more and more of these or else type situations where the generation that raised me would have seen right through that smokescreen would have understood it if only from watching the Godfather movies what it means to consent and what it means to be forced into do something against your consent. And we, we see this missed more often than not. So if I'm trying to do anything here, this notion of trying to build upon a foundation by remembering and challenging, it kind of comes down to 
the idea that, well, some people ask me every now and then, Greg, why are you still part of the church? If you've got misgivings about some of the things that are just kind of wrong out there, uh, if you for, feel, for example, that a lot of people misrepresent your theological view, either because they're not Christian, and it serves them well for Christianity to be filled with a bunch of people who are anti-science, anti-logic, anti-reason, so they can point to them and dismiss them as a bunch of fools, and people like me get in the way of that. I don't, for example, believe that, that there's any age whatsoever to God, infinitely older than 8,000 years, and which only makes this sort of question of consent even worse, right? And the, the whole point of the song God Culture is to raise that question of whether or not if we're supposed to hold the same standards today that were true in biblical times, then we've got laws that are an affront to the Old Testament way of thinking. Or if we say, no, 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 we've got a notion of what's right today, and that that notion has a great deal of morality behind it, um, the Holy Spirit living inside us tells it that it's right, then either the standard that went on, as described in the books of Matthew and Luke, is rape. We have to accept that in different time periods, different things are true. To me, it's important that somebody be inside the church asking those questions. The, the response I think you'd normally get, the response I'm thinking I would probably get if I still lived where my parents live, is, is an effort to ban the album. That that album shouldn't have been recorded, that album song shouldn't have been written, that that album shouldn't be sold to anybody, because it talks about something I'm uncomfortable with, and the way for me to deal with that is to try to ban it. If you don't know my thoughts on that, the previous inappropriate conversation, freedom of song, give you a pretty good idea of how I feel about people who ban records and burn books. But I think the best way to look at this was actually a post shared very recently by the uh, Facebook group, Christians Tired of Being Misrepresented. I've spoken about this group many times. They're very important to what I do here on Inappropriate Conversations. And it goes like this. They were noting that there have been a lot of posts lately uh, targeting the religious right and perhaps using the term conservative from a political spectrum perspective a little bit too generically, that there is a difference between people who are politically conservative and part of the religious right and people who are politically conservative and not part of the religious right. But in this post that uh, CTOBM put up there, they're basically saying that this isn't necessarily our problem. This is a problem for people who are conservative readers of the page who find themselves offended. Because my question to them is the same question I posed to myself years ago within the church. If you disagree with people who have been misinterpreting scripture for at least since the middle of the 19th century, what are you going to do about it? Here's quoting Christians tired of being misrepresented. Some of our conservative readers are upset with us for lumping them in with the religious right. We'd like to ask this. If you are tired of being lumped into the group of the right-wing theocrats and the extreme legislation being pushed throughout the country, then why are you not directing your frustration to your own party? Why are your leaders so extreme and why are you voting them in? If us targeting the religious right makes you uncomfortable, then maybe this isn't the page for you. I'm glad, frankly, that they are getting this kind of negative feedback from people who consider themselves to be politically conservative and are hanging around on Christians tired of being misrepresented, and I'm glad that those people are upset at the way their views are being characterized. And I agree with the website. They ought to do something about it. They ought to be sitting there in what for me would be a Sunday school classroom saying, explain to me how the Immaculate Conception, based on our current Christian worldview, isn't rape. And if you can't do it, 
That's okay. It's a tough question. If you won't do it, then don't tell me I'm supposed to respect you just because you're older than me. I'm going to respect you because you've earned it. And when you fail to earn it, then you fail to get the respect. Greetings from the cockpit. This is Captain Scott, and we'd like to thank you for flying the Seder Sphere. This is co-pilot Cindy. We ask you at this time to unfasten your safety belt and release your chairs from their uptight position. We're high-flying with stopovers expected in theater, gaming, movies, television, and other mature destinations. We'd like to thank you for flying the frisky skies, and we hope to see you on our next flight to the Seder Sphere. Our different drummer today is Amir Thompson, better known as Questlove. He's the drummer from The Roots and the co-leader of the band that you can see on Jimmy Fallon's show, both his previous show and the current version of the Tonight Show. For me, though, my original experience of him was with The Roots. And I think that before I get into talking about that particular rap group and their influence, I want to do a shout-out to a previous different drummer and just talk a little bit about an NPR interview from at least a year ago that might still be available through their website, where Terry Gross interviewed Questlove, And the conversation that they had was fascinating to me. Uh, Really opened up a lot of thoughts in my mind connecting my interest in music and how somebody who's got this this mix of introvert and extrovert, when you're in that that central part on the dial between those two, how do you handle yourself at a party? How do you record something that you're expecting to be consumed publicly and yet at the same time have pieces and parts that you hold back because they truly are just yours? I thought it was very interesting the way he kind of told that story, uh, saying at one point that he actually leaves parties if he's aggravated that the DJ has missed opportunities or done things in, in a way that he certainly wouldn't. That That's among his focuses. And rather than trying to be a social butterfly, he's more interested in kind of that background approach. I was... I was the kid who, when I was probably three, four, five years old, my parents were deeply worried that if you gave me a stack full of albums and a record player, four hours later, I'd still be there playing the records, listening to music. And the music didn't even have to be necessarily to my taste. As a four-year-old, what kind of taste have you developed yet? But to me, even if I was stuck in a place where I had a turntable and a stack full of albums and none of the albums were music that I either owned or liked, I could still probably make that work. And he also shared in that one interview that his parents were a little bit concerned that he was maybe much more interested in spinning discs than, than running and playing outside. Here's what the Wikipedia article says about Questlove and his early life. Thompson was born in Philadelphia in January 1971. His father was Lee Andrews of Lee Andrews and the Hearts, a 50s doo-wop group. His mother, Jackie Andrews, together with his father, was also part of the Philadelphia-based soul group called Congress Alley. His parents did not want to leave him with babysitters, so they took him on tour with them. He grew up backstage of doo-wop shows. By the age of seven, Thompson began drumming on stage at shows. By 13, he became a musical director. His telling of this, again, on the NPR interview, is much more interesting than the Wikipedia article could possibly capture, including a moment where his father needed him to step in at a very young age, seven, eight years old. And, you know, Questlove was initially a little bit, well, as you would be, a little bit reticent. You're a kid. Here you are on a stage where people have paid in concert to to see a doo-wop band. 
And his father just reminded him, hey, you know it. You know it back and forth. You're a good drummer. You've heard all the music. You can play all the music. Just do it now when we need you most. Questlove was enrolled at the Philadelphia High School for the Creative and Performing Arts, and it's there where he and Tariq Trotter, a.k.a. Black Thought, created a band called The Square Roots, later truncated to The Roots. When I look at my Zune to just kind of track my music listening, I've got 51 songs by The Roots on my player right now, and that's actually been recently pared down. It was much longer. Um, when I put a new band, and this has only been the last couple of years that I've been exploring the music of The Roots, when you get to put a new band on your player, you tend to put everything from every CD you buy, listen to them as you're on the move, on the go, and then decide what to pair back later. But I basically have an average of eight or nine songs from Game Theory, Phrenology, the Roots Live album, Things Fall Apart, and right now I'm still sitting on, I believe, every track from the Elvis Costello and the Roots Wise Up Ghost collaboration. Haven't hit the point of being ready to pair that one down, at least not just yet. Why so long? Why in the 20-teens am I catching up with music that was recorded and released in the late 90s and, and throughout the 2000s? Well, one of the reasons was, when I was working in record stores, the Roots came along, and they came along just slightly too late for me, from an in-store play perspective. I was working in a store in a part of the country that was unmistakably the Bible Belt. And I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again because it's funny. Uh, we, at, From time to time, we'd get clean versions of rap releases that we could play in-store, overhead, and on listening posts, and not necessarily get into trouble with people who were concerned about offensive language. But one day on a busy Saturday morning, we just received a clean version of DRS and, a, and their Gangsta Lean album, and we're playing it as we worked. It's got a good driving beat. I'm going to get to the beat here in just a minute. And that helps you, I think, get work done and, and kind of stay alert. And we weren't paying attention to the lyrics. This had not been anything that anybody had screened before in the office while you know, doing the books at the end of the night. No one had taken it home to listen to. The mailman brought it. We saw it was clean. We plugged it in. And an angry mother with you know, a young child came to the counter to complain about the music that was playing. I just initially thought that her issue was going to be that it was rap. It wasn't that unusual that anything rap, including Christian rap, would just rub people the wrong way because it was rap. And the assumptions that we were making at the time, again, this is after the body count controversy with Ice-T, for example. And so I showed her the disc and said, well, we only played it because it came in as a clean version. And luckily, she was, a, again, a good person, a smart person. She believed me, and she got a little bit of a chuckle out of it, and she said, I still want you to take the CD off, but I, I understand why you put it in. I realize it's an honest mistake, but just for your reference, young man, and I was a little bit younger than her, for your reference, there's nothing inherently offensive about the words give or me or head but when you string them together, even though there's no profanity in there, it's still probably too much of an adult theme for a mall record store on a Saturday afternoon. And what that did was it basically made me a little bit gun-shy about playing any album that was that carried normally carried an explicit language sticker in the store, because even the clean versions couldn't necessarily be trusted. And we encountered this from time to time. I talked about it in the last Inappropriate Conversations show. The decision on whether to put a warning sticker on any album was solely with the discretion of the record label. So every now and then you get an album with no warning sticker but a little bit of language. Or you'd you know, confusingly get an album with a warning sticker that had no language, no lyrics at all on it. And it was kind of hard to manage that. But so when The Roots came along, there was no good vehicle for me to listen to it without buying it first for the purpose of listening to it. And for that reason, I missed out. I'm going to play a little bit of a sampling of various tracks by 
the Roots. With Questlove doing the drumming, because really the key to the Roots as a band and the things that make them interesting is not just how his experiencing growing up and coming into the music business reflected the exact principles I'm trying to drive home here. He learned the music from his father's doo-wop band. He challenged things going forward with sampling and other sort of issues that were prevalent in rap at the time that the Roots were getting their rec- their major record label contracts and actually becoming a, a charting group with um, pretty much starting with Things Fall Apart, I think is where they hit it big uh, from a CD perspective. But building upon the foundation of those who came before them, the thing that the Roots did that was different, and the reason I think there's no question that as a group they built upon that foundation, was playing the music live. For the most part, you went to see a rap group, an outfit, perform. Before this period in time, you wouldn't see that much live instrumental performance going on. Most of it was sampled. Most of it was keyboard. The DJ was doing the driving. And although Questlove perhaps is a very talented DJ and might have done some DJ work for The Roots, his real contribution to the band was live drumming. Here's what I mean by that. Yeah. If you're worried about where I've been a whole 
Okay, so what did we hear? Well, first, I intentionally pulled samples from my three favorite albums by The Roots. Uh, Not necessarily in the order that I like them. I just put them together in order that seemed to have a bit of a flow to it. But the the work comes from the albums Game Theory, Phrenology, and Things Fall Apart. From Game Theory, started us off with the title track, followed by Here I Come. From Phrenology, which is probably my favorite of all The Roots CDs I've heard, started off with Thought at Work. Then Water, the one that was the most dreamy and flowing. The introduction to Complexity. And a clip from right in the middle of a track called Something in the Way of Things. That probably has the biggest vocal segment, the biggest rap segment uh, from a vocal perspective. Followed that up with a couple of tracks, a couple of clips from tracks from Things Fall Apart, without a doubt being one. And the long outro at the end of that was You Got Me. Now, for most people, you hear the song You Got Me, you're thinking either of Jill Scott's lyrics, or in this case from the original CD, Erica Badu's performance. But to me, what really makes the track You Got Me work is the cymbal, and really the, all the drumming, but the cymbal in particular that carries out that song all the way to its fade out. There are things about the band, the roots, that simply don't work if you don't have a live drummer doing it. And we had never said that about rap before. And I'm not 100% convinced we've said it the same way about most hip-hop artists since then. Certainly, when people began talking about building upon the foundation of hip-hop and rap being performed live, the roots of the foundation they're building it upon. And for me, the crucial musical element is brought to us by Questlove. On the other side of the drummer, outro, I'm going to share one more story from Questlove that I think really brings it all together in terms of What do our elders misunderstand the most? And where can a voice like Thompson provide some wisdom? It was roughly a year ago when the Trayvon Martin case was making its way into the courtroom. So a little more than a year ago because there would have been that distance between the killing and the decision to go to trial and the trial itself. And it's only just a little bit more than one year ago right now that the verdict came down in that trial. But before it all came to a head, Questlove wrote an article that was shared online. And I think it really spoke with great wisdom about some of the things that we misunderstand today. If my older generation has one thing more wrong than everything else, it is probably race relations. Race relations might be the one place where the greatest distance between what we thought in, say, the early to mid-1960s and what we think now has a big gap. I'll just use schools as an example. 
Because of charter schools and uh, homeschooling and other sort of factors, factors which, whether you like it or not, have an element of what we call white flight to them, our public school system is more racially segregated today than at any point in my lifetime. And we've allowed that to happen almost without comment. Race is a problem in America today. And when I suggest that to people who are 20, 30, 40 years older than me, I think some of them have a real problem with that idea that perhaps they're still living in a, in a situation where we, we passed a few laws and we've done some you know, things with zoning and now everything's better, right? Well, let me tell you something. Ferguson, Missouri is not the only place in our country where you've got a great divide between the racial makeup of the population and the racial makeup of the service providers like police and fire and ambulance and so forth and so on. And it's not the only part of the country where a suburb in a large metropolitan area, in this case St. Louis, is completely racially divided from the rest of town. This is not uncommon at all. I would have thought, if you'd asked me about the racial divide in St. Louis, my first thought would have been East St. Louis, Illinois, versus the rest of the St. Louis, Missouri metropolitan area. But Ferguson is an indication that, well, there's more than one. They're right. You know, Tulsa versus North Tulsa is another example of it. Little Rock versus North Little Rock. In that part of the country, in that central part of not truly what we think of as the true South, not the uh, Civil War South, but this this place where it's not quite Southwestern, but not certainly Southeastern, you see these divided cities a lot. But what Questlove reminded us in his article was even in cities that are not divided at all, like New York City, which I think is probably, that's a stretch, there's still a great deal of racial divide geographically there is if a zoning commission has come along and, and dictated a few things based on the racial composition of the neighborhood. But he told a story about getting on an elevator and having a woman at the last minute get on the elevator with him, perhaps not seeing he was there. And he asked what floor she was on so he could push the button for her. And she was extremely hesitant to say. So he rode the elevator all the way up to his floor and turned out it was her floor as well, or he assumed as much. Asked her if she wanted to get out first. She didn't. So he went ahead and got off. The elevator doors closed. He doesn't know what happened from there. Did she go back downstairs and take another elevator? Did she go to a one floor up and take the staircase down? The bottom line was that she was uncomfortable enough as a single woman being in an elevator with a single, you know, young to middle-aged guy. And maybe there was a racial element to it as well that she didn't feel safe. and She didn't feel safe with him. He shared this in the midst of the Trayvon Martin story and basically said that this is real, that whether the majority of Americans, whether that's a majority based on age, baby boomer generation, or it's a majority based on race, white versus black, or it's a majority based on what we might call conservative Christianity versus the rest of the country, whatever that majority is, the majority of Americans want to be in doubt about the fact that these are the kinds of things which confront black men on a regular basis, then I would encourage them to read an article from a black man that they probably have become comfortable with. By now, anybody watching Jimmy Fallon on TV is used to the idea that one of the key players in the band is the drummer from the group The Roots. But he says he will find himself in situations pulling into a parking lot of a retail store or a mall and realizing that there are people around him, relatively young white women, for example, who are heading to their cars and rather than get out and have to deal with the awkwardness of them being afraid because he's suddenly there, he stood up out of his car, he'll stay in his car and wait for them to drive away because it bothers him to be guilty 
for no reason whatsoever, but to be the cause of people being that uncomfortable. We as a society have got to deal with this issue. And the number one demographic that is stopping us from dealing with openly with questions of race and gender is this oldest generation. I've heard people from that group within my church circle of friends, for example, suggest that we no longer have any racial issues in our country because Brown versus Board of Education happened in the 1950s. We're good. I think we're not good. I think we're not good. We've been in denial for decades now. Things have gotten worse, not better. You only need to read Supreme Court rulings from the last four or five years to realize that things were already getting worse and have taken a turn in the wrong direction worse. Things are getting worse, not better. And it's going to be hard for us to solve if the older generation remains unchallenged about things that they have forgotten or refuse to remember. Because if we do not challenge, if we don't address the question of memory, if we don't attach some logic and reason to where we are now versus where we used to be and how we got from there to here, we'll be establishing in our society a foundation that no one in their right mind would build upon. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. Don't forget that a Points and Questions show is coming up in early October. Thanks for listening. Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid. But you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd. This is simplysyndicated.com. Hey, Mandy. Have you heard about Simply Everything? Why, no, Jacob, I've not heard about Simply Everything. What is that? Simply Everything is the paid subscription service provided by Simply Syndicated. I love Simply Syndicated! Which features such great shows as Make It So and Movies You Should See, Do Ask, Do Tell, all the Federation shows like Starbase 66, Nerd Hurdles, The Masters of None. How do I sign up? Well, everything you need to know is at simplysyndicated.com slash everything. Everything? I love everything! For a mere £4.99 per month. Is that what it is? That's what it is. 99 pence? I don't know. I don't know how they say it. Like, four ninety-nine pounds. What about four pounds ninety-nine? Four pounds ninety-nine, yeah. For under five pounds? <laughs> For under five pounds of flesh. Not of flesh. That's not what they deal in in the UK? Uh, I don't think so. That's not what a pound is? It's not a pound of flesh? I think so. Everything I know about Shakespeare has led me to believe that a pound is a pound of flesh. Uh, yeah. No, that's in Venice. Oh, right. That's why we're not going to Italy. Yeah. For, on vacation. Right. It's a streaming service, not unlike Netflix. Ooh. When you sign up, you can listen to everything Simply Syndicated has ever made. Whenever you want? Whenever you want. It's simply everything. <laughs>
Nerd Hurdles.